Hello, and welcome to It's All About the Money, the sixth episode in the series Population Health, The Unfinished Journey with Dave Kendig. So I'm Sandy Magnet, and I'm here again with Dave Kendig, a pioneer in population health. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sandy. It's nice to see you this week. Yeah, well, I am really excited about this episode. If nothing else, the title is really intriguing. And just so our listeners know, you developed that title. <laughs> so uh, I think many people know that uh, I'm often, often interested in the money uh, around population health, but this this was yours. So uh, well, you've, yeah. been a, you've been a co-champion for that idea, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so Dave, the fundamental assertion in your 1997 book was that, quote, population health improvement will not be achieved until appropriate financial incentives are designed for this outcome, end quote. I think this is as true today as it was back then. And in fact, we reiterated that together in 2018, 20 years after the publication of your book, when I encouraged you and we wrote a paper Purchasing Population Health Revisited. Yeah, and that was your paper. I mean, I was happy to join you in it, but um, you, you pushed me along and that was fun. It, it was fun. But let's talk more about how do you get these incentives? How do you get them lined up for population health? I mean, from Evans and Stoddard in 1990 and going forward, these balancing investments for optimal health outcomes, it's really been dominant in your thinking. Where can this funding come from? Yeah, well, Sandy, um, it's a critical issue. And you know, the subtitle of this whole series is called The Unfinished Journey. And, and so many of these challenges are unfinished um, and we don't have complete answers and we haven't made the policy solutions um and so they uh they go forward as as a challenge i mean about financial sources i mean it's not rocket science and there's no silver bullet i mean it'll have to come from many sources but weak voluntary efforts will not be enough um, you're old enough i think with me to remember the 1960s anti-war poster what if they had to hold bake sales to build a bomber? The war wouldn't have happened. Um, so um, stronger, more organized, maybe formula um, incentives, we'll get to that, um, are needed. Uh, George Isham and I uh, listed the main categories in our 2014 um, piece, a community health business model, um, that actually um, won the ACHE Paper of the Year Award um, that year. And it covers a lot of population health um, from all, everything we've talked about. But we do have a section on financial incentives, which lists these obvious categories of capturing funding from ineffective healthcare spending, better return on investment for programs and policies outside of healthcare. Healthcare is not the only one that's got waste kind of problems. 
government has to be a part of it, strengthen governmental funding for population health improvement at all levels. Um, there has to be an increased focus on philanthropy. I mean, they've had a lot to do as we discussed last week in the development of the field, but you know, the resources to actually do it is not their sole responsibility or within their limits. And then we got to engage corporate business leaders who have a stake uh, in, in a healthy and productive workforce. And many of them are beginning to, to understand that. Um, so that's uh, just a beginning list, but in some ways it's kind of obvious or I won't say lame, <laughs> but it's hardly a silver bullet. Well, let me ask about one of them in particular, the reinvesting from savings from reducing the 25 to 30% of healthcare that's thought to be ineffective and wasteful. Talk more about that one. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about what are the possibilities, you know, um, all along. Uh, and for a while there when ACOs were hot, um, I thought of that as a great um, potential opportunity. But as we discussed previously from my, one of my other articles, resistance to a reallocation from medical care is quite powerful. I initially thought ACO or shared savings from providers and payers was promising, but as far as I know, um, that incentive hasn't been very strong in, in general. And could there even be a community share left over, even if um, savings were coming back to provider organizations. I wouldn't say we should not keep an eye on that still, um, but it's been a hard slog, I think. I agree with you. It's been a hard slog, but we shouldn't take our eye off of something that's um, not only ineffective and wasteful, it's actually causing harm to right. people and populations. And your work, on uh, chairing, co-chairing the NASM collaboration on healthcare expenditures is one of the bright spots in the policy environment right now, at least keeping track of these issues. So one of the things that you've thought a lot about that I think is another way to think about, you know, finding money, finding resources, finding incentives for population health is uh, community benefit. So tell us more ab about your current thoughts on that. Yeah, well, for a while, <clears throat> I mean, I really thought that was, if there was any silver bullet, that would be it. I mean, mainly because it requires no new legislation. I mean, the fact that nonprofit hospitals have to pay a community benefit share in exchange for their tax exemption I mean, is in the federal tax code and there's lots of money. I mean, we, I did a paper with Sarah Rosenbaum and others. I mean, at that time, um, there, it was uh, $24 billion and I bet now it's more than 50 or 60 billion or even more. But the problem is there's nothing specified about how much or for what purpose. It's essentially whatever every nonprofit hospital or county accountant writes down on their 990 form. Um, so uh, there's no teeth in that regulation. 
early on, I called an IRS, IRS official who was in charge of the nonprofit division. He said that I was, uh, that I, he didn't say I was smoking something, but that was what it felt like. He said, never expect the IRS to enforce anything other than collecting the taxes, which they barely have enough staff to do now. Um, in 27, 2007, um, there was some congressional action, um, actually by Senator Grassley, Republican from Iowa, who's been concerned about these issues. They at least required the IRS collecting data, um, specifically, more specifically, about what they report in community benefit categories. Um, we actually did the first paper from that data set showing it was not mainly charity care, but Medicaid discounts. Actually, the title of that paper was Is Hospital Community Benefit Charity Care, which most people sort of intuitively think it is. Um, and that was followed by a national, that was for Wisconsin, but that was followed by a major national study um, showing the same thing. But really, uh, I think that has had no policy movement. I again return to the opening line of Paul Starr's book, The Dream of Reason Did Not Take Power Into Account. So if people want to hear a, another take on this, the uh, National Academy's Roundtable on Population Health Improvement just had a workshop titled Population Health Funding and Accountability to Communities. So that would be June 2022. And they had a panel in which uh, author Kimberly Digioia, if I'm saying that name correctly, uh, talked about uh, community, hospital community benefit after the ACA. And she came to the same conclusion that there'd been no change in community health improvement spending uh, after this. So it's a really sad commentary. But if you go all the way to the end of that uh, panel, I think it's panel two, she does give some strategies for how to improve population health improvement through the community health benefits. So anyway, that's a little side, uh, but I, I think people shouldn't, shouldn't give up on it because like, as you said, David, requires no new legislation. It's already in uh, the tax code. It's also amazingly under-researched um, and uh... Uh, I won't have time, we won't have time to get into those in our blog series here, but I've got about seven papers on very different aspects. I mean, some, some of the things that are allowable um, just have, you know, kind of are very limited definitions that don't make a lot of sense. So there would be a lot of opportunity here were there the policy uh, thirst, which there isn't. Mm -hmm. So if we move on to another concept, health outcome trust. So that's a term that you coined in your book, Purchasing Population Health. And then by 2016, they were also being called community multi-sectoral partnerships. So how do you see those flourishing? How do, how do you see those developing and being sustainable? Sure. And again, another opportunity for 
in this case, uh, coordinating resources uh, across the community. I mean, I, I suggested that we called it then local health outcome trusts. I still like that term. They would serve as stable, multi-sectoral coordinating entities uh, across hospitals, public health, United Way, other nonprofits, the school system, um, who would meet regularly, establish local goals and priorities, and identify resources for substantial and continuous investment in improving in overall health and health equity. I mean, it's well, in some ways, that's what United Way does in some communities, but not necessarily with the full breadth like across public health or hospitals. Um, such entities have great potential, I would think, but in order to sustain significant activity and results, they gotta have some dependable backbone resources. Actually, back to community benefit, there is no reason why community benefit should not be required to essentially provide the backbone funding for such organizations. Um, in a health affairs blog in 2016, I made the case for such investment and identified several potential sources of funds that could be braided into communities investment efforts. That's a blog called to sustain and launch local health outcomes trust focus on backbone resources. Sounds like an opportunity for a, a policy change uh, that could be go through maybe starting at states, starting at probably start at states and get a couple of states being willing to do that. So Dave, one of my favorite articles of yours kind of relates to the money is talking about moving from uh, indicators, uh, health uh, population health indicators to health investment benchmarks. So tell us more how that idea came to be and how it relates to the money. Sure. Oh, this one is short and sweet, and it was a short. It was a really short little article. Um, many of our national and state reports set targets, but they are all in the outcome and determinant buckets, like infant mortality rates, or smoking rates, or child poverty rates. The local, uh, if you may not know, but every county ranking, there's a county snapshot. And in those snapshots, they display the benchmark value for which only 10% of counties in the country are doing better. But these are benchmarks for determinants and outcomes like infant mortality or smoking rates. This is useful, but then to take it to the next step should be how much per capita on each determinant is needed to move the outcome, including equity metrics. We don't know what those amounts right aren't now. That is a future ongoing research challenge. Um, but I think we actually have to do that um, in order to give local places guidance on what they need. And it'll vary from place to place. You know, some, some places, um, you know, their smoking rates are already fine. So they, <laughs> they've made what they need to do, or maybe not that much more, but they need on early childhood funding or um, maternal mortality work, um, they're behind. 
So how much approximately would be needed to give yourself a target? Again, you can't manage what you can't measure. And how much would be needed to close gaps? It, yeah, absolutely, for both, absolutely, for improving the mean and closing the gaps, right. So you've, you've mentioned before uh, the thought of formulas. Uh, do you think that, you, so you, you mentioned that maybe early in one of our podcasts that you thought that was needed. <clears throat> do you think that's still true today that we need formulas? Well, I do. I mean, sometimes, so this is one um, very weakly uh, developed. The idea is simple. It comes from other areas of public policy, like mortgage interest deductions or crop subsidies or Medicare payments for resident training. Dollars flow in automatically without new legislation, unless a major legislation on crop subsidies or a grant renewal. Um, but it would need to be tied to an outcome. But I don't have any fancy thinking about how that would move forward. I mean, I've wondered, I'd like to explore maybe the history of uh, mortgage interest deductions or crop subsidies. I'm sure it's mega politics, but um, our unhealthiness as a nation deserves some mega solutions. So Dave, to close out this podcast, I have to go back to the beginning and say, is it really all about the money? <laughs> well, yeah, I get, I've gotten that from many people. Um, I mean, of course, there are other kinds of incentives. Um, actually, Mike McGinnis, talks about that in his match essay that we discussed earlier. Um, it's regulatory, legal, reputational, educational. I mean, there are other categories and incentives that of course need to be at work, but the health and equity improvement challenge is so great. And our healthcare waste is so great that the straightening out the financing has to be the overriding concern. Uh, along with, in collaboration, other types of incentives um, needing to achieve this end, like, like, like tightening up, you know, tightening up community benefit. But of course, that one's financial at, at its roots, at its roots, at its roots also. So, listeners, so that we end on a, a hopeful note, read the money, uh, read the money. I would uh, encourage you to read. Kendig and Milstein's article in Health Affairs. It's called A Balanced Investment Portfolio for Equitable Health and Well-Being is an Imperative and Within Reach. They wrote that in 2018. I think you will find that uh, encouraging. So let's uh, head to our takeaways, Dave. Um, so the first one is no single source of needed resources for population health. There's not a single single source. We need all private and public sectors to do their share. And you note, excessive healthcare expenditures are the perfect storm of American culture. We want more of everything. There's greed in medicine, fascination with technology and so on. And as Starr said in the social transformation of medicine, professional power 
gets medical care expansion without controls. And I know I've heard you say this, Dave, that we need to keep an eye on topics such as genomics and personalized medicine, kind of expanding without uh, controls and without evidence for effectiveness. Second takeaway, there's a promise in community multi-sectoral partnerships or health outcomes trusts, including business as well as government, nonprofits like United Way, healthcare and public health. But we need core resources to function effectively. And I heard you also say that maybe one of those core resources could come from community benefit. And then the last takeaway is that we need much more research on the relative cost effectiveness so cross-sectoral investment benchmarks can be set. Anything else, Dave? Is there another one? No, I think that's plenty for now. I could do a whole podcast on community benefit, but that'll have, <laughs> that'll have to wait. Wait for another time, but uh, it's, it's definitely one to think about the opportunities there. So listeners, thank you for joining us today for It's All About the Money in the series, Population Health, The Unfinished Journey with Dave Kintick. Please join us next time for our seventh episode where we'll be discussing population health and equity. Links, more information about the series and references for today's presentation are in the show notes, www.iaphs.org, Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health Science. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye.